references to stories and events that happen in the Old Testament. And uh, in preparing for this sermon, I was wondering to myself, should I just kind of refer to them, or should we flip back and actually read through them to kind of refresh our minds on what Paul is pointing to, right? So, as Pat Torrey pointed out to me, it's, since it's only 1025, we can read through all those references together. We've got a lot of time. <laughs> uh, so, a couple things before we start. We are going to go backwards a little bit just to uh, take a look at some road marks uh, along Paul's line of argument so we can see how this sits in context, right? So, this section of text, uh, chapter 10, we're going to go through the first 13 verses. This section sits in the middle of an argument that he's making, and it started uh, kind of back in chapter 8, okay? A little bit, a little bit in chapter 6, but mostly chapter 8, it goes through 11. So we want to kind of frame the conversation that Paul is having with the Corinthians so we have an idea of what he's moving towards here, okay? Also, the plan today, uh, as much as possible, is to uh, kind of coast through the text smoothly, but... There will be some, I'm, I'm just putting this warning out there, there are going to be some kind of terms or phrases in our particular text today that seem kind of off-putting. Like, what, what is that? I don't want to get hung up on those because, again, we want to focus on what Paul is trying to communicate, not why did he use this specific word here. Does that make sense to you guys? Okay. We are going to try to untie them as best as possible, but we also want to get a good sense of the bigger picture. So if you go backwards a little bit... Um, let's see, like in chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 12, you can see that Paul is responding to a previous letter that the Corinthians have written to him, right? So we have these things in quotes, for example, in 12, all things are lawful for me, and then Paul goes on to explain why that idea or principle may be good or not good, right? And then move on to chapter 7, we have in the first verse, uh, now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And then he goes on to say whether that is good or not good. Okay, And then we come to our section of thought here, which starts in chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that, and here's the quote from their letter, right? All of us possess knowledge. And he goes on to explain whether that knowledge, how that knowledge should be used. And then in chapter 9, he explains... Um, how he, he points to himself as an example of one who surrenders his rights. Now, what exactly is happening in these chapters? Right? So, uh, John MacArthur says, makes a really good point in this. And in this area, or even in our Christian lives, we can readily see that some things are very black and white. Right? So, for example, thou shalt or thou shalt not. Really clear. Okay? But what about all the other stuff that the Bible doesn't really speak about, at least explicitly? What about those things? How do they, what, what category do we put them in, and how do we, as Christians, live that out, right? And so Paul is kind of talking about this, this idea of how to be responsible with your Christian freedom, right? We get that sense where he's saying, hey, if you're single, it's better, because you can focus all your attention on serving God, right? And then in chapter 7, again, he's saying... Hey, be content because no matter what status of life you're in, none, none of those things stop you from serving God. Okay? In, in chapter 8, he's saying, Hey, 
yes, idols are nothing. There's only one God. If you go to a meat market and that slab of you know, prime rib or whatever has been offered to an idol, it's no big deal. It's not a big deal. Okay? However, you need to consider a couple things, right? You need to consider, one, how you're doing, how you're coming and going, how your life choices affects other people, especially younger, immature, weaker believers. And then he points to himself and he says, these are the lists of rights that I have as an apostle, as a man of the gospel, but I don't cling to them as if each and every time I'm confronted with a situation, I just claim these rights, right? Because there's a purpose to his life. And we can see that at the end of this section, actually, uh, chapter 10, verse 31, which is a familiar verse. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So this area of Christian life where there is no thou shalt, there is no thou shalt not, it's just wisdom. Do it all to the glory of God. That is the direction that marks the decision-making that we are supposed to undertake, right? Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do for a purpose, though, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So that is what is framing what we're talking about today in chapter 10. Does that make sense to you guys? Good. No one's listening. It's okay to respond. You can talk back to me. All right. So let's read our text today. Chapter 10, uh, first 13 verses. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses. One of those phrases in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did. And were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And also verse 14, why not? Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Okay? So this morning we're talking about idolatry. 
There are kind of three points. The three points would be something like um, God's faithfulness to his people, which we will see in verses 1 through 4. The second section would be something like God's judgment and justice on people who don't respond properly to God's faithfulness. That's the second point. And lastly, to heed the warning about idolatry, which we see in verses 5-ish, but 6 and 12. Okay? So that's, that's our roadmap for today. And hopefully we can use those guideposts to, to kind of bring all this stuff together. So remember, we want to hold this in context. What is Paul arguing for? And more importantly, why is he bringing up all these Old Testament examples and narratives uh, to make his point? Like, how is this relevant for the Corinthians? Moreover, how is it relevant for us today? When many people in churches look at the Old Testament and just, hey, they're just stories, right? Just a recording of stuff that happened a long time ago. But to find the connection between me and them, that's really tough, right? But Paul actually makes, unearths some of that conversation for us. So before we jump in immediately, let us go to the immediate context, which is a few verses just before the start of chapter 10. So if we're in chapter 9, remember Paul is pointing to himself and he's saying, yeah, you may have these freedoms and rights at your disposal, but it doesn't mean you need to cling to them with white knuckles, right? And then at the end, uh, verse 24, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So in that little section at the end of of chapter 9, he is talking about two ideas. Self-control for the purpose of not being disqualified. You guys see that? Exercising self-control. So here we are, we arrive in chapter 10, and he starts with, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. So the question for us is, there's this word for, right? How does that connect us to the previous section? Or is Paul just just throwing in a word and saying, yeah, it kind of makes sense. Of course that's not what he's doing. This is connected to the ideas of self-control, winning that imperishable wreath, right? Exercise self-control in all things so that you are not disqualified. And then he goes through a list of ways God has been faithful and how his people have, in a sense, been disqualified, you see. So we're, let's look at kind of the structure of what's going on and then, and then jump into it for a little bit. There are a couple of comparisons going on in these 13 verses. Okay? So if you look at verses 1 through 4, you see a word that is repeated fairly often. Does anyone catch that? What word is it? All. Who said all? Someone said it over here. All right. No, you don't count. You're my way. No, I'm kidding. I love you, honey. <laughs> all right. So we have the idea of all repeated in the first four verses. Okay. And then verses hmm, 7 through 10. There is a, not a word, but a phrase that is repeated. And these, these are our first two parties of comparison. So there's all, and then in verses 7 through 10, what do you guys see? 
Say it boldly. Huh? Some of them. Some of them. Okay? So we have the comparison of all these people and then some of them. Okay? That's the first comparison. And then the second kind of more mysterious comparison is what this text has to say for the Corinthians. So does that make sense? So these guys and then Corinthians. What's the, what's the deal there? And that's what we're chasing after this morning. Okay? All right. Uh, a couple of other interesting observations. Is, remember, the, the setting of the Corinthian church is a mix of Jew and Gentile, but largely Gentile. And when he starts this, he says, I do not want you to be unaware. So he's bringing something to light that they might be missing. And he says that our fathers were all under the cloud. So he's talking to Gentile believers, and he's pointing to Israel. And he's saying, there's a connection between you and them. These are our fathers, right? So he's arguing, I think, in this, in this passage for a continuity of the Corinthians with the Old Testament people of God, right? And his use of the Old Testament here is more than just, hey, look at all this stuff that has been recorded for all these people a long time ago. Rather, he points to them, draws them to present day, and says, warning, here's an example. You see? So there is a real meaningful application, and not just recorded history, we can kind of read it when we feel like it. No. It's meaningful for us today. You see? So... Here in the two sections of text, in the first four verses and in 7 through 10, we have all, and then we have some of them, okay? And just to make it plainly clear, all were under the cloud in verse 1, all passed through the sea, again in verse 1. We are going to get a little bit more into this, I just want to point them out. All were baptized into Moses, whatever that means, in verse 2, all ate spiritual food and drank Spiritual drink, right? You see that in verses 3 and 4. And then the descriptors for some of them, in verse 7, some of them were idolaters. Some of them indulge in sexual immorality. Some of them, in verse 9, put Christ to the test. And then finally, in verse 10, we have some of them grumble. Okay? So what is the point in this comparison? Here it is. All... All of Israel experienced God's blessings and his covenant faithfulness, right? They felt the benefits of God being with his people, right, while under Moses. All Israelites experienced that, except there were some of them who, idolaters, sexual immorality, tested God, you see? So now we are picking from within the all and saying, look at this, look at these people. There's a warning for you Corinthians, Right? This is applicable for you in some way. Okay? So the idea here, the first idea that all were under the cloud comes from Exodus 13. Right? And if you're in church for any period of time, I'm sure you've seen like this Bible story on like flannel boards or whatever. Right? With a cloud or the pillar of fire. So that generally leads the Israelites, sometimes stands between the Israelites and something as a protective layer. Right? We especially remember this from the story of crossing of the Red Sea, correct? Or the presence of the tabernacle. When they built the tabernacle, all of a sudden, woof! Right? The presence of God like a great cloud. Okay? <clears throat> so we, we understand these ideas of the, the idea of being under the cloud and passing through the sea. Remember, these things apply to all the people. Okay? Now we have 
In verse 2, all were baptized into Moses. What? What in the world does that mean? This is one of those phrases where it's easy to get hiccuped on, but we want to get the kind of the bigger picture of it. So remember, in general, if we look back, especially to the crossing of the Red Sea and that whole exchange with God, what happened there? Well, the Israelites were rescued out of slavery, right, by God into a new sense of freedom, or for them it was the promised land, right? So we have this notion of, of uh, being freed from something by someone to something, right? So the comparison that Paul is pointing to here, one of those them-to-us comparisons is similar, saved out of something by someone to something, okay? So we are not saved, or we or the Corinthians are not saved out of Egyptian slavery. We are saved out of slavery to what? Sin, by God through Christ, right? Not into a promised land, right? But into a promised future, a glorified state, right? The new heavens and the new earth, right? That is our future, you see. The eternal full sense of rest, okay? Do you see the similarities in these two comparisons? It's not a very big stretch, right? So this idea of being baptized into Moses is comparing those two big general ideas, that they were saved out of slavery by God into the promised land, and we, who are not baptized into Moses, we, we have a similar Christian experience, and that we're saved out of slavery to sin, by God through Christ, to a new uh, future, okay? So he's just associating redemptive experiences of Christians and Israelites. You guys see that? All right. That's all we want to kind of say about that baptized into Moses. Uh, well, actually, <clears throat> why into Moses? Uh, there's, no, there's no majority agreement be, between commentators. So something, something just means into his leadership. Some guys think, well, while they experienced all this stuff, he was there with them. Some think being baptized into Moses is the idea of baptized into loyalty, right, or being bound up with him, okay? But we also want to remember that Moses, in his function, was a type of Christ. Like, he foreshadowed Christ. He was a type, a shadow, a figure of a greater reality to come. It says so in Acts chapter 7, verse 35. Also, if you read Hebrews 3, okay? <clears throat> so, the comparison, uh, I'm just saying it happens on many levels, all right? But remember, the main idea is not well, what does he mean by baptized into Moses? The main idea is what point is trying to, what Paul is trying to say in comparing these two. The focus is on pointing to Old Testament examples as a means of making the Corinthians aware of something. Right? So he's just drawing some parallels. One commentator says, and this is the last thing we'll say, baptism marks the beginning of the Christian life and he applies it to the beginning of Israel's existence as God's covenant people. Okay? All right. So we're moving on to the comparison between what happened to all of them and some of them. So all experienced God's deliverance from slavery under Moses. Do we remember how many of those people went to the promised land? Two. Two. Out of a nation saved from slavery, two went to the promised land. Beginnings of a warning, you see? So when he says flee from idolatry, he's pointing to this 
the heaviness of this example, you see, two out of a nation went to the promised land. Okay? That's kind of scary. Moving on, though, we're going to go to the verses 3 and 4. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. Paul here is not talking about immaterial food or immaterial drink. He's referring, however, to what is provided by the Spirit of God. You see? Of course, when he says food, in Exodus 16, we remember what is that food particularly? Manna! And manna, and there was an incident with quail. We'll get to that, though. Um, So the food he's referring to is manna, and the drink uh, is rock water. As we can see from Exodus 17, Numbers 20, and also the following verse. All drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. What is going on here? Since we are only talking about verses 1 through 13, later on, Paul refers to the Lord's Supper, and I think he'll make a connection, but that's for later on. However, there are some questions here, right? Like, a rock that followed them. So I imagine, in, in my silly mind, rock that followed them. So there's a bunch of Israelites wandering through a wilderness, and this rock is just rolling around, right? Like, that seems kind of silly. Some commentators think that's actually the case, and they point to old Jewish tradition, right? I don't think that's what Paul is saying, that there was an actual physical literal rock just following him around. Again, some commentators actually think that. But remember, um, he's trying to make them unaware of something, right? And that is an, a leaning towards idolatry, okay? So the idea of this... <laughs> Spiritual rock. Did an actual rock follow them? No. He is speaking of the same divine source. So remember when he's saying spiritual food and spiritual drink, it's not that they were immaterial, right? So he's not making a comparison between material things and immaterial things. He points to the similar source. He's saying the source of your food and drink, right, was Christ. That's what he's pointing to here. You guys see that? Yes. Okay. So the question of, did an actual rock follow them? No, he's just pointing to the provisions of Christ. Now this makes sense, especially if you look backwards to what he's talking about, all these blessings. All were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all, all, all. All of these were provided by God, right? Protection, leading, food, drink, okay? So this idea isn't far from what Paul is trying to say here. Okay? Um, All right. So, spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. And then verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. And as we talked about just a few minutes ago, most, sure, only two of them, right? So most of them, yeah, but that's that's not quite, that's not quite, well, I'm not going to say heavy enough, because this is God's inspired word, but we know that the, the ratio is crazy. It just... All right. Verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Before we get there, I want to point out one more item of God's faithfulness. So we see God's provision for his people, that all these people experience blessings, right? God's faithfulness is also apparent to us 
in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. How do we see God's faithfulness here? It seems like the argument that the Corinthians were trying to make was, hey, the temptations that we face, no, you don't understand. These are, these are not normal. They are exceptional temptations. And Paul's saying, no, everyone experiences these things, right? And then he points to, this is, God is faithful, yes, he's made a case in the first four verses. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Just think about that for a second. How does that happen? So there's a, a consideration of your personal ability and God sovereign, sovereignly raising his hand and saying, not beyond this. For you. Right? Amy. Amy cannot, she cannot be tempted about, be beyond this. So I will stop such a temptation. Not only that, but I will also provide a way for her to escape it. That's what the text says. He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And that is for each one of us. That's, that's amazing. That, that's something, isn't it? Eugene cannot be tempted beyond this or he will fall. So I will sovereignly put my hand over, protect him, and then, furthermore, as if that were not enough already, I will give him a way out. So too for each and every believer. Right? Do you guys see that? Okay. <laughs> Amen. All right. So now we're on to this idea of most of them God was not pleased. And those two men that made it through were Joshua and Caleb. The story is in Numbers 14, verses 20 to 35, if you want to read it. But the thing is, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. It's actually a really morbid picture, right? It's something like, for their corpses were strewn about the wilderness. It's not that they were just overthrown, but they were dead bodies all over the place. So what is Paul saying? Even though all of the people were recipients of God's covenant blessings and faithfulness, they were all witness to physical manifestations of God's power. How many things did the Israelites see in terms of God's mighty power? A sea splitting in half so we can walk through it? That's crazy, right? All of them saw, experienced all these things. They experienced God's power and patience Right? But only two made it. What does that tell us? That tells us that being a recipient of God's blessing doesn't mean you're going to make it to the promised land. There's a warning in that for us, isn't there? Right? So let's, let's make it contemporary and maybe a little more extreme. Just because you have been going faithfully to church all your life still doesn't mean you have actually put your faith in Jesus Christ as the Savior of your sins. Just because you faithfully attend as a member small groups, church activities, you open your Bible, doesn't mean you are automatically going to the promised land. That's the warning for us, you see. That's a little scary. Did anyone like, feel like a little cold? <laughs> yeah, that's scary, right? But there's, there's hope, don't worry. <laughs> okay. And we'll talk about uh, evil desires a little bit, but I want to move on to the sum of them. Okay, so in verse 6, we have this, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. This desiring of evil is, can be seen as kind of the controlling factor for the next four specific examples that Paul lays out. So the results of desiring evil, which 
by the way, resides in all of us, the results of which are idolatry, sexual immorality, putting Christ to the test, and grumbling. You see? Okay, so that's the connection that we're making here. All right? The most important point of which is, I don't know about you guys, but when I think of idolatry, my mind goes somewhere like Indiana Jones, right? Like some tribal dude in some faraway land who's got the skin of an animal and maybe a loincloth and body paint on, prostrate in front of a stone statue, right? I'm like, that's idolatry, and I don't have to worry because I'll never do that. (laughs) Loincloths don't look good on me, right? But if the scripture here is any indication of things, idolatry is not the action of that. It is something that resides within our heart, right? So idolatry as an action is rooted in evil desires, okay? Specifically for here, for the Corinthians. All right. Shall we look at these four? Idolatry, what is he talking about here? Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. He's quoting Exodus 32, verse 6. What is one of the most heinous forms of idolatry that the Israelites committed? Golden calf. That's exactly what he's talking about here. right? Moses is on the mountain and they're like, Aaron, we don't know what this... Where's your brother? What are we going to do? And Aaron says, give me all your gold. I'm going to make a statue of a cow. And we're going to worship it. And this is what happens after. So they sacrifice to this calf. And then they eat and drink and rose up to play. The phrase rose up to play has um, sexual overtones. right? So it's, it's this idea that they relinquished all self-control, let up, they just let it all out in whatever form possible. You see? Connection with have self-control from the end of verse, uh, chapter 9. Right? This is what they're talking about, a lack of self-control. What were the consequences of them making that idol? There were three. You guys remember? One, they had to drink it. Right? What was the second one? Hey, Moses says, hey, whoever's with me, stand, stand over here. Who came up? Levites. And what did he say? Go kill your father and brothers and whatnot. They went out and killed him. Right? And lastly, what happened? Judgment by by God, as if those two weren't enough. Right? Serious consequences for idolatry. Uh, In in this sense, what I mean is in in verse 7, idolatry is actually making a physical idol. Right? Okay. Because I said before that idolatry is something that is a desire, which is true. But this is the making of an actual idol, an image. Okay? And obviously, well, not obviously, the idea um, of all the parts of the story of the golden calf that Paul could have pointed to, why does he say the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play? Kind of weird of all the things. Why not just say they made a golden calf? Well, to make it relevant for the Corinthians, because there were issues of eating and drinking, right? Didn't he already talk about foods offered to idols? Moreover, later on, he's going to talk about participating in pagan feasts, right? Eating and drinking for the Corinthians. is something they actually struggle with. Also, this idea of rising up to play, sexual overtones, right? Temple prostitution, rampant in the city of Corinth, right? So these are all relevant issues for the people of that time. 
They are not irrelevant for us. Okay? All right. Moving on to verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. That story is in Numbers 25, 1 through 9. I think I'll read this one. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people, hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced them pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through their belly, through her belly, sorry. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were twenty four thousand. Okay? So that gives us the story, but those who died by the plague were twenty four thousand. We flip back to 1 Corinthians. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, if some of them did, and 20, 23,000 fell in a single day. So this, this is another one of those phrases, okay? So I'm going to give you the short answer, and then I'm going to give you all the, all the possibilities that I've run into. Short answer is, I have no idea. Right? I, I don't know. Okay? Here are all the possibilities that I've run into. All the possibilities are, well, it was 23,000 in one day, 24,000 in total, okay? Or, hey, he's not trying to be exact, like give an exact head count. He's just saying, ballpark, 23,000, right? Or, the actual number is between 23 and 24,000. Or, he's actually referencing numbers 2662, so Paul, as he is recounting Old Testament stories, his mind slips and goes to another reference, which is 23,000, right? Or he is factoring in those who are killed by the judges first and then the rest of them, okay? Lastly, <laughs> lastly, Paul is combining punishments from Numbers 25.9 and Exodus 32.28. Those are all the options that I've run into to explain why one says 23,000, why the other says 24,000, okay? But the main point here is, is not, we don't know, the main point is, it's not his main point, okay? I think if Paul needed to cite an exact number, he would have, but the main point is not how many die that day, the main point is the severity of idolatry, okay? Do not indulge in sexual immorality, or this is what happened, would it have been any better if it was only 23,000? That's, that's still a lot of thousands of people who die because of sexual immorality, you see. Okay? So Paul's main point is the consequences of idolatry are very serious. 
All right, does that make sense? All right, so please don't get hung up on the numbers too much. There are a lot of books. If you still have questions about it, lots and lots of books. I'll be more than happy to point you towards them. All right, this idea of putting Christ to the test. In verse 9, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. This is found in Numbers 21, 4 through 9. This is the story of that bronze serpent. People are complaining constantly. Okay? And then we're going to go to grumbling, which is found in verse 10. Nor grumble if some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. This is not one particular example because if you've read the Old Testament at all, Israel complained a lot. Right? And it often consisted of something like this. Moses! Why have we been saved out of Egypt? We had meat, we had garlic, we had onions. Did, did the Lord, did your Lord save us out of Egypt only to leave us here to die? We had, right, that over and over again, okay? And there's something to be said about their complaining and grumbling, right? There seems to be some kind of dissonance between what God has done and what, what the people recognize, Right? Because as third-partiers, in a sense, we look back on Old Testament in Israel and we see all these things that God has done for them. How, how he has, the manner in which he has manifested his power to save them out of Egypt, right? Like Egyptians, or Israelites, how could you complain? Look, he's provided food for you, water, freedom, a promised land. You don't seem to recognize who God is. Right? Like, they don't understand it. Why, why else would they complain? There's something that you don't understand. Moreover, their complaints against God impugn his character. Right? As if God will save them out of Egypt only to leave them to die in the wilderness. That says something about God's character. As if God will save them out of Egypt only to have them starve to death, thirst to death, not have any place to go. Well, you're out of Egypt. Good luck. That says something about that guy, doesn't it? Right? That guy, is, he's not trustworthy. Right? He did one thing good, and the, the rest of it is questionable. Do you see what I'm saying? Uh, here's an example. That I, this is a stupid example, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Uh, Marianne and I were watching a movie. I think it was like during this week or last week or something. The movie was, uh, it had John Goodman. It's called like 10 Cloverfield Lane, Cloverfield Street. Something like that. I don't remember. Anyway, she didn't like the movie because it creeped her out. Here's, the, here's, here's what I'm getting at. In the movie, we follow this girl who's like a fashion designer or something, right? And she has apparently broken up, and she's just driving off somewhere, driving in the middle of the night, and this truck just <laughs> hits her car, tumbles over the road, and she's knocked out, okay? She wakes up, and she, she looks around. She, she looks to be in someone's basement or shelter or something, and uh, her, one of her legs is wrapped up, but it's also handcuffed to, to a fixture in that basement shelter thing, right? And so at the very onset, you're like, hey, she's alive, but it's really weird that she's chained into that room. It's like she's a captive. You see what I'm saying? That's, that's very weird. So this guy comes in, and he seems really nice. He's like, hey, you were banged up on the side of the road, gives her a tray of food, change of clothes, offers her a shower, like that. Eventually, she's, you know, uncuffed, and she's free to, like, walk around the place and whatnot. But as, t- so, 
So at first, you're like, I'm not sure about this because she seems like she's a captive. And, she, and then this guy seems nice, right? Hell, food and all this. So he's explaining, something's bad with the air outside. You can't go outside. If you go outside, you will die. And she tries to escape. And as she's trying to escape, this lady with like, she looked like she just walked through radiation, right? Like her skin's melting off. She's on the other side of the door, like, help me! So it dawns on this girl that something is indeed wrong, and this guy has probably saved her from experiencing the same fate that lady did, right? Okay. So they go on their merry way, play board games and puzzles and stuff. And then the ventilation or the something with the air goes wrong, and it shuts off, right? And so it's John Goodman. If you know him, he's, he's rotund, okay? There's another guy that's saved with him, and he's messed up. So she's the only character of the three who are in that shelter that can go and kind of like restart this air. So she goes up, she restarts the air, and she notices like a little port or window for viewing. She's like, ooh. So she, she opens it even more, and scratched on the inside is a word. Help. Creepy right. Right? And, and so she's like, that's weird. Not only, not only that, but there's like blood, you see? And so this, this begins to unravel because you feel comfortable with a guy and you're like, okay, now I'm, I'm questioning him again because he has admitted, hey, yeah, my truck hit you, but I saved you because I was, you know, things are going on, I was in a rush. So what I'm pointing to is this guy who saves her, right, it ends, it, can I spoil it for you? It ends up being aliens, which is like, Anyway, so <laughs> aliens take over the world and he's trying to get to a shelter and that's how it all happened. But he ends up to be a real creeper because there is a girl previous that is no longer there. And this guy also has a vat of chemicals that like eats up human flesh and just leaves the bones. And, and the third person was dumped into there. Okay, the point is this guy rescued the girl from aliens but also held her as a captive. So simultaneously doing something good and something not good at the same time, right? So you are right to question whether this guy is trustworthy or not, because he ends up being not trustworthy. But if those accusations are false, you are saying something about this guy's character. He saved you, he did something good, and you sit there and like, I don't know about this guy. That's what the Israelites did. That's my, that was the illustration. I know, kind of, anyway. Did that, did that make sense at all? Okay. Some people are like rolling their eyes. But I'm oblivious because it happens a lot. All right. So, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer, capital D. <laughs> Who was the destroyer? We don't know. The best guess from guys who are so smart they've forgotten more than I will ever know, they say this is the angel who carries out all the judgments and punishments ordained by God. Okay? But the point is not who was baptized into Moses or any of these things. All right. <clears throat> Next verse. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. So we are to benefit from these stories in some way. On whom the end of the ages has come. Okay, so I think that's the last speed bump phrase for us in this passage. What is this, what is this end of the age idea talking about? Excuse me. Paul is referring to attention the eschatological tension of already or not yet. Okay? However you view that, what he's saying here is, in the Old Testament times, things happened in types and shadows, right? There are a lot of promises, right? Christ is a fulfillment of all those things. So we, 
get to look back through the lens of Christ and see those things in their fuller nature. So therefore, when we look back on Old Testament Israel, we can understand that these things are for us as warnings, particularly in these passages. Does that make sense? That's what he's saying. Okay? All right. What I do want to go back to is, okay, first, let me remind you. So we have a couple of comparisons. All the people experience blessings, and then some of them, right? And then the idea that all the people experience blessings, and only two made it to the promised land. So what does this say for us? Okay. So the warning is of idolatry. And we see that in verses 6 and 12. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And then in 12, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he falls. So like I said earlier, idolatry is easily correlated with this idea of some guy far away bowing down before statues. But that is not the only expression of idolatry. In this passage, we have the making of a physical idol, sexual immorality, putting Christ to the test, grumbling. Okay? The warning is, as the title says, idolatry is actually normal and very ordinary. Okay? So in our minds, it's easy to think idolatry is trying to replace God with something. Sometimes. Idolatry is also having God and other things as if God were not enough. Especially in the case of Israel where what God has provided for them, how he has saved them, is not good enough. They wanted more than what God has given them. Right? Idolatry is, it could be a good thing that you crave, a great thing that you crave, so much so that it is not just a good or great thing, but it is an ultimate thing. It is where you derive all your hope, all your pleasure, all your purpose. It is what sustains you. It's what drives you from day to day. It's anything other than God that you pour your life out for. You see. Idolatry is also something that everybody in this room struggles with. I can only think of four cases in which someone in this room may honestly and rightfully say, no, I do not struggle with idolatry. And here are the four cases you can add more. One, you are not a human. Okay? Two, you are a human, yet you are in your glorified state, but here for some reason. Okay? Three, the Bible is wrong. Right? Four, God is a liar. Those seem to be the only exceptions to where any of us could say, no, no, I do not struggle with idolatry. The question is, Church, it's not whether you struggle with idolatry, it's how. How you are an idolater. What are the idols in your life? What do you easily cast aside? What do you easily cast God aside for? Right? It can be marriage, relationships, academic pursuits, Monies, material possessions, skills, talents, looks, any of those things. Right? The point is, God lays exclusive claim to all of us. Not only does He lay exclusive claim, He lays claim to the sum total of our being. So when we see that evil desires are the root of idolatry, God doesn't just want you to do right things. He wants you to think right things, 
feel right things, desire right things, right? So we can desire good things to the point where they become ultimate things, and that is idolatry. So what is it in your life that you crave, that you desire, that you covet, that you lust for more than God? What is that thing in your heart that you can shrug God off for? Ah, God can wait. This is more important. There is no good reason, church, to think that we are any better than these grumbling Israelites. It's easy to look back and say, these guys are idiots. The truth is, we have, we have that same idiocy within us. Right? What, what, would it, what could you point to in your life that makes you any better? Technology? Separation of time and space? The industrial revolution? Democracy? Freedom? None of those things matter because the idolatry is in our hearts. Right? Remember, they all experienced God's blessing, but most of them fell. So like verse 12 says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he, he stands take heed lest he falls. How are you so sure, Christian, that you will not fall? How, how are we so sure that we will not fall? Well, we get good grades. Well, I have a steady job. I'm smart and I'm talented and I'm funny. Or let's play the holy card. I have really good church attendance. That won't cut it. I'm a leader in a ministry. Do you see my faithfulness? That won't cut it either. Do you see my spiritual fruit? That doesn't cut it either. Do you see what I've sacrificed for God? That is not assurance that you will not fall. There is only one. That is Christ. Christ. For whom there was no escape in his deepest trial. For our sake. That Christ. It is the faithfulness, not of the people to him, but of Christ to us. That over and over, against a complaining, grumbling, unfaithful people, God has always remained faithful. That is the only way you can say, I will not fall. Right? It is the same God who brought the Israelites out of Egypt, who gave them food and drink, who sustained them through the wilderness, who brought them into the promised land, fulfilled everything that he was going to say. That very same God brought us out of slavery to sin. Right? Sustains us every day. He is faithful to us, even though we are not faithful to him. That is the only way in which we can say, I will take heed lest I fall. And my security is in Christ, because he will not fall. Right? Amen? As a closing, we're going to read through divine poetry, which is a great, it'll be a great summary of what we talked about. <clears throat> so, uh, Bennett, if you would come up. We're going to read Psalm 106 together. Psalm 106. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for his good. For his steadfast love endures forever.
Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord? Or declare all his praise? Blessed are, those, are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O God, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abram. Fire also broke out in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Then they despised the pleasant land. Having no faith in his promise, they murmured in their tents, and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. Then they yoked themselves to the Baal of Per and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. Then Phinehas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever.
They angered him at the waters of Meribah. And it went ill with Moses on their account. For they made his spirit bitter. And he spoke rashly with his lips. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them. But they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's stand together for the closing song.